the lowest hanging longevity fruit. Hey guys and gals, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. I'm feeling like a pretty cool cat today. I just took a racetam rich nootropic stack. I feel like I'm firing on all 12 cylinders this afternoon. And I've got a book that I just finished, and that would be Why We Sleep, The New Science of Sleep and Dreams by Dr. Matthew Walker, who just has a, a beautiful, beautiful accent. There, there are people in this world that would pay a fortune for that man's accent. Go listen to some interviews with him. He he sounds like a million bucks. So this book, get this, this book was a, a widely acclaimed title, but I'm going to break with what other people are saying. I'm going to give this book three stars. I don't think it deserves five stars. Don't think it deserves four stars. This is three stars for me. And it's still a pretty good book. I was still pretty impressed by it. I certainly learned a whole lot from it. And over the course of the podcast that proceeds, I'm going to break down the important things I learned in the book. I'm going to give you a, a phalanx of factoids from the book that you can that you can share that are going to make you seem as smart as you are of course and we're there there are some pragmatic takeaways from the book but i got to give this one 3 stars because it felt like a book for people like Matthew Walker, Dr. Matthew Walker. It felt like a book for other sleep research scientists and doctors. It was a bit short on the pragmatic stuff. You have to get through two, three, four chapters of dense theoretical uh, theoretical abstract discussion of sleep science that is not it's it's nice if you really want to understand all these abstractions and understand the state of the art of sleep science but if you want the pragmatic stuff and the takeaways well that's what I'm going to deliver to you in this podcast. So if you appreciate that, if you're like a busy person and you, you, you don't have time to read all these great books out here about all these different health things, about philosophy, about how to live a little bit better, about all these different life hacking things that we're into, if you're a busy person and you don't quite have the the time to read all those books because you got like family, kids, dog, hobbies, uh, etc. You, you got normal stuff to do. I'm happy to deliver these reviews to you. And in fact, I want to increase the number of these book reviews that I deliver to you. So I'm adopting what I think is going to be a little bit more of an efficient way for me to work, which is that I'm going to read these books 
And then as opposed to word crafting this uh, this this for this properly formatted um, essay on the book, what I'm gonna do is just do a bunch of highlights on the book and take some notes, organize a couple of thoughts, and then I'm just gonna give it to you. Yeah, give it to you somewhat raw in the form of a podcast here like this. This is gonna allow me to get through more books and get the essentials to you via this RSS MP3 podcast feed. So if you like that, do give this an upvote, give this a share, whatever the algorithmic signal boosting thing that you can do there on your end of the tube from me, I would really appreciate it. All of that inspires me to uh, get to keep doing what I do here. And you are going to want to check out this book review uh, where it appears over there on LimitlessMindset.com. I'm going to link in that book review to the the essentials that I mention here in this uh, podcast. I don't leave you hanging. I don't go and mention something that you're going to want to look into on a podcast. So you're there at the gym and I mentioned something and you think, oh, I need to go and look that up. And then you got to remember what the heck it is. What I do is I just leave notes with all of that good stuff through the link that's going to be below wherever you are listening to this. Okay, sorry about that preamble. I am a person prone to preamble. I'll admit it. Let's dive in. So we'll start with chapter one, which is this thing called sleep. Okay, uh, first takeaway, the shorter your sleep, the shorter your lifespan. Okay, then he mentions addressing the question of why we sleep from an evolutionary perspective only compounds the mystery. No matter what vantage point you take, sleep would appear to be the most foolish of biological phenomena. When you are asleep, you cannot gather food, you cannot socialize, you cannot find a mate and reproduce, you cannot nurture or protect your offspring. Worse still, sleep leaves you vulnerable to predation. Sleep is surely one of the most puzzling of all human behaviors. So this is an interesting insight, which is that almost all animals, and certainly the mammals, we sleep, and it's incredibly costly from an evolutionary perspective. And this just emphasizes the central point of the book, which is uh, kind of obvious, but I suppose something we need reminding of, which is just that sleep is super important. Sleep is something we should make time for. If sleep wasn't one of the most important things that mammalian bodies did, evolution would have surely found a way to get us rid of it. And then he moves on to talking about the chronotypes. Okay, he says, most unfortunately, owls are a more chronically self-deprived 
having to wake up with the larks, but not being able to fall asleep until much later in the evening. Owls are often thus forced to burn the proverbial candlestick at both ends. Greater ill health caused by a lack of sleep therefore befalls owls, including higher rates of depression, anxiety, diabetes, cancer, heart attack, and stroke. And you're like, is he talking about animals? We've got owls and larks. And this is something you may have heard of. This is the chronotyping. This is different ways that different types of people sleep. And we have given them uh, animal names like owls, larks, bears. I think there's uh, wolves in there also. And owls are going to be the types that are going to be prone to staying up late, to coming alive at night. Me and my wife are are owl owlish. I'm a little bit more of an owl than she is, but we are both definitely in the uh, in the what do owls do? Hooting. We are both definitely hooting in the tree together late into the evening. And I guess the takeaway is that if you're an owl, if you're a night person, then you need to adjust your lifestyle some so that you can get more sleep in the morning because you don't want to be staying up till 2, 3 a.m. because you're a, a an owlish type and then waking up at 7 a.m. with the larks. Next, he discusses melatonin. In this way, melatonin helps regulate the timing of sleep when it occurs by systemically signaling darkness throughout the organism. But melatonin has little influence on the generation of sleep itself a mistaken assumption that many people hold. To make clear this distinction, think of sleep as the Olympic 100 meter race. And melatonin is the voice of a timing official that says, runners on your mark, and then fires the starting pistol that triggers the race. That timing official, which would be melatonin, gever- governs when the race, which is the sleep, begins, but does not participate in the race. In this analogy, the sprinters are other brain regions and processes that actively generate sleep. Melatonin corrals the sleep-generating regions of the brain to the starting line of bedtime. Melatonin simply provides the official instruction to commence the event of sleep, but does not participate in the sleep race itself. Okay, so that's this is a section of the book that gets into the neurophysiology of the different hormones that govern sleep. And melatonin in particular If you're a person that takes melatonin to get to sleep, please don't do that, or at least don't do that frequently. I use melatonin to get to sleep. At this point, it's maybe a few times a year. You really do not want to get into the habit of doing melatonin often to get to sleep because it is a hormone. And you shouldn't be a a noob biohacker at this point. You should be a bit of a, an acolyte 
of, as of a biohacker health person at this point, and you should know not to chronically feed yourself hormones that the body is supposed to, to naturally generate and use. He talks about, about sleep and travel, I believe here. Here's how it works. At around 7 to 8 p.m. London time, I would take a melatonin pill triggering an artificial rise in circulating melatonin that mimics the natural melatonin spike currently occurring in most of the people in London. As a consequence, my brain is fooled into believing it's nighttime. And with that chemically induced trick comes the signal timing of the sleep race. Okay, so that's talking about how melatonin might be useful in the event of jet lag. Okay, he also says, unlike the phase of sleep where you are not dreaming, where you lose all awareness of time, in dreams you continue to have a sense of time. It's simply not particularly accurate. More often than not, dream time is stretched out and prolonged relative to real time. And so this is confirming something you may have suspected, which is that dreams can sometimes sort of be like in the movie Inception. Remember in the movie Inception, they go to the layer of the dream where they get the time dilation effect and something like, what did it come down to? Something like 10 minutes in an upper level is like 50 years or something like that in the lower level of the gym, of the, of the dream. So they end up getting really old in the lowest level of the gym because it takes like 20 minutes for them to complete some exciting mission in the upper level of the dream. This is hearkening to uh, something that he's talking about in the book, which is that, yeah, sometimes uh, a short amount of time in the real world can be longer time in sleep. That's kind of that's kind of mind blowing to think about. Okay, moving on, he mentions things get more interesting when bird groups when birds group together. In some species, many of the birds in a flock will sleep with both halves of the brain at the same time. How do they remain safe? from threat? The answer is truly ingenious. The flock will first line up in a row. With the exception of the birds at each end of the line, the rest of the group will allow both halves of the brain to indulge in sleep. Those at the far left and right ends of the low of the row aren't so lucky. They will enter deep sleep with just one half of the brain, opposing in each, leaving the corresponding left and right eye of each bird wide open. In doing so, they provide full panoramic threat detection for the entire group, maximizing the total number of brain halves that can sleep within the flock. Whoa, did you just get what he said there? So next time 
you see a formation of birds flying in the sky. Some of those birds are sleeping at any given time, and they sleep while they fly, but only half of their brain sleeps because the other half of the brain has to monitor that side of the sky for, you know, a, a hawk coming in to, to kill their, uh, their wingmen, I suppose. That's a fascinating thing to, uh, yeah, think about it next time you see, next time you see some, some birds wafting through the sky. Moving forward, our circadian biology and the insatiable early morning demands of a post-industrial way of life denies us the sleep we vitally need. At one time, we went to bed in the hours after dusk and woke up with the chickens. Now, many of us are still waking up with the chickens, but dusk is simply the time we are finishing up at the office with much of the waking night to go. Moreover, few of us enjoy a full afternoon nap, further contributing to our state of sleep bankruptcy. And yeah, so this is talking about how the Industrial Revolution and how the Industrial Revolution, the modern day of life, the, the modern lifestyle, and there are many redeeming features of the modern lifestyle. I really appreciate having a Having plumbing, for example, <laughs> that's that I wouldn't trade. But this demands that we take higher responsibility for our sleep, for making sure that we are getting the sleep that we need. Next, one way in which Mother Nature has perhaps helped adolescents unbuckle themselves from their parents is to march their circadian rhythms forward in time, past that of their adult mothers and fathers. This ingenious biological solution selectively shifts teenagers to a later phase when they can, for several hours, operate independently and do so as a peer group collective. This is kind of interesting. You, I'm sure, remember when you were a teenager and you always wanted to stay up at night. Were you like this? I certainly was. The nighttime was just this this exciting time that you could uh, you could go out and do things with your friends and you could uh, you could do dangerous things with your friends, you could explore the world, or you could spend time on the internet. You could do, uh, you could explore new digital worlds, be they in, uh, be they in social media, be they uh, documentary films, be they video games. As a teenager, the nighttime is just, it's, it's this time to kind of find yourself and find what eludes you during the daytime when you're within this walled garden that your uh, that your parents that society has built has built around you and he's suggesting that this is a a mechanism of evolution to kind of push our species forward in creativity that's a that's a cool idea 
isn't it? Um, then he also talks about elderly people. Frequently, this means that many seniors progress through their later years, not fully realizing how degraded their deep sleep quantity and quality has become. This is an important point. It means that elderly individuals fail to connect their deterioration in health with their deterioration in sleep, despite causal links between the two having been known to scientists for decades. And even when controlling for factors such as mass index, gender, race, history of smoking, frequency of exercise, and medications, the lower and older individuals' sleep efficiency score, the higher their mortality risk, the worse their physical health, and the more likely they are to suffer from depression. So as you get older, as you are progressing through life, through your 40s, your 50s, even beyond that, you do need to be more focused on sleep. The The tendency seems to be that people continue to keep doing what they did when they were younger, which is staying up late so that they can enjoy that that nighttime world of, uh, of different temptations and, and different little rabbit holes and things to explore, and then waking up early so that they can get to work, so that they can express the uh, industriousness within them. And as you get older, that should change. As you get older, you either need to go to bed, you need to go to bed earlier, and then ideally wake up. Uh, you, you can you can sleep in, you can try to sleep in, or you can, uh, but your tendency is going to be, the natural human tendency is going to be to go to bed early and then wake up early as an older person. And what he suggested, if you're an elderly, or is it offensive to call people elderly nowadays? I don't think it's offensive. If you're elderly and you have energy issues, you want to do what he suggests, this is kind of interesting, is that you go out in the morning times, but you wear sunglasses in the morning times, and so you avoid a lot of sunshine in the morning times. But then you do a walk in the mid-afternoon and you don't wear sunglasses in the mid-afternoon. And so then you get this, you get this blast of sunlight on your corneas in the mid-afternoon. And then this gets your circadian rhythm set up to keep you awake a little bit later so that you're not, I, I, there's certainly a stereotype to this of like an older guy, you know, a grandpa or grandma, and she's like waking up at 6 a.m. And then she needs to take a nap in the afternoon by like 3 p.m. And then she, then after that, she, uh, she maybe stays up too late or whatever. And she has her circadian rhythm all, all, all messed up in a funny way. So he suggests using the sunshine and uh, sunglasses to kind of hack that, which I thought, thought was interesting. Let's move on to part three of the book, which is how and why we dream. Quote, 
the scientists were able to predict with significant accuracy the content of participants' dreams at any one moment in time using just the MRI scans, operating completely blind to the dream reports of the participants, using the template data from the MRI images, they could tell, get this, they could tell if you were dreaming of a man or a woman, a dog or a bed, flowers or a knife, they were in effect mind reading, or should I say dream reading. And this is a fascinating trend. This is a thing that you can expect to see in this very weird technological mediatic world that we are about five, ten years away from at present, where they are going to figure out a way to record dreams. And you can just think of some of the bizarre, um, deranged, um, cinematic inequality dreams that you've had in your life, and they are going to figure out a way to record dreams. And I imagine this world, again, I think it's going to be about five to ten years off, where there's going to be professional dreamers. You know how nowadays we have YouTubers, professional YouTubers, people who just make YouTube videos or they just make silly vlogs about what other, whatever subject, and, then, and that's just their job. Well, there's going to be professional full-time dreamers. And what they'll do is these people will really crack the code on lucid dreaming. They'll figure out exactly how to do lucid dreams and they'll get good at constructing lucid dreams with all sorts of different elements that will make for an entertaining experience for a, for a customer ultimately. So you can imagine these might be on YouTube or you can imagine what there will be is there'll be virtual reality platforms. I, the other month I met a, I hung out with a friend and I got to use his Oculus VR device. And so I'm imagining this future where you can replay other people's dreams via a Oculus VR, or you could do it with something just as, as simple as a, uh, as one of those, as the cardboard app, as one of those smartphone apps where you put your smartphone in a little headset that's attached to you, and then you get a, a 3D experience. And so there's gonna be people, there's gonna become this, this creative market for, dream experiences and there's going to be people that are experts at creating dream experiences that they know just how to have a lucid dream and how to stack danger adventure horror suspense sex 
violence, all of these different uh, characteristics of entertainment that people are endlessly enticed by. There's going to be professional dreamers that record their dreams like this and then publish them. It's going to be weird, but also it's going to be some amazing uh, entertainment. And again, I think we're probably five, ten years out from that. What I predict is that this is going to be a real-world use case, or perhaps you could say a not-so-real-world use case of NFTs, of those cryptocurrency non-fungible tokens, where dreams will... People will be able to make NFTs out of their dreams and then sell those dreams on virtual reality platforms. And then people will either pay for them directly, pay a couple of bucks to experience a really crazy dream scenario, or they'll just be advertising supported the same way that YouTube is now. So I, yeah, I see dreams one day being being NFTs. That's just, hey, you know, maybe I'm crazy to be sharing this idea. Maybe this is my... Uh, my my million dollar idea that I should just go out there and, and implement myself. Moving forward, quote, level-headed as always, Aristotle, yes, we're going back, Aristotle dismissed the idea of dreams as being heavily heavenly directed. And instead, he cleaved strongly to the more self-experienced belief that dreams have their origins in recent waking events. So if you study philosophy much, you'll know that Aristotle was kind of the, the based guy. Aristotle was the philosopher that was, he, he was a big fan of like empiricism. Like he was a big fan of like making observations that made sense based upon what you could take in about the world, as opposed to inventing crazy metaphysical theories for things. In stark contrast to Aristotle was Freud. Quote, Freud believed that dreams came from unconscious wishes that had not been fulfilled. And on to describe to me. The problem, however, was the lack of any clear predictions from Freud's theory. Scientists could not design an experiment that would test any tenets of his theory in order to support or falsify it. This is one of the major sins of Freud, and his sins are certainly myriad, was that his thinking his theories were all non-falsifiable kind of theories. Basically, Freud was a uh, philosophical, psychological grifter. All of his theories were designed just so that he could make money there in Vienna, just so that he could offer a service where he could get paid really well by these dysfunctional aristocrats of Vienna by just filling their minds up with these mostly BS theories that he had. And unfortunately, these these Freudian paradigms of 
things like dreams they've 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 stayed around for a while and it's it's just now in in 2020 that we are finally uh taking out the the trash philosophy i think i believe okay interesting example that he mentions here with dreams he says quote ask kyle to tell me his dreams so he's saying for example when he's in his university classes cuz the author is a professor so he will he'll survey his students and Kyle for example one of his students will say something like i was running through an underground parking lot trying to find my car i don't know why i was running but i felt like i really needed to get to my car I found the car, but it wasn't actually the car I owned. But I thought it was my car in the dream. I tried to start the car, but each time I turned the key, nothing happened. Then my cell phone went off loudly and I woke up. In response, I, I look intensely and knowingly at Kyle Having been nodding my head throughout his description, I pause and then I say, I know exactly what your dream is about, Kyle. Amazed, he and the rest of the lecture hall awaits. My answer, as though time has ground to a halt. After another long pause, I confidently Enunciate the following. Your dream, Kyle, is about time. And more specifically, about not having enough time to do the things you really want to do in life. A wave of recognition, almost belief, washes over Kyle's face. And the rest of the class appear equally convinced. Then... (laughs) The author admits, then I come clean. Kyle, I have a confession. No matter what dream anyone ever tells me, I always tell them the very same generic response. And it always seems to fit. That's kind of funny, isn't it? That's an example of how the dream analysis business is, uh, that's kind of a grift. Also, that's you can look at your own dreams. I'm actually kind of a fan of doing some dream journaling. You can check out my previous podcast about dream journaling, but I certainly wouldn't buy anyone's analysis of dreams because it's just one of those things where it's it's so easy to BS. Next factoid of a total of 299 dream reports that stick gold collected from these individuals across the 14 days, a clear rerun of prior waking life events day residue was found in just 1% to 2%. Dreams are not, therefore, a wholesale replay of our waking lives. We do not simply rewind the video of the day's recorded experience and relive it at night, 
projected on the big screen of our cortex. If there is such a thing as day residue, there are but a few drops of the stuff in our otherwise arid dreams. Okay, let's move forward here from the dreaming section because I'm struck by the the tick, 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 ticking of time. Let's see, he's talking here about PTSD patients and essentially the theory that he advances in the book about dreams is that dreams are a mechanism of the mind to psychologically process and deal with what goes on during the day. He talks about how people who have PTSD, uh, soldiers, etc., that these kinds of people, when they don't get dreams, when they are not dreaming enough, when they're not um, experiencing the REM sleep, they remain traumatized. So he, I've heard different theories on, on dreams. The theory that I've always liked on dreams has been that dreams are sort of like the holodeck in Star Trek. If you remember in Star Trek, they have this cool place called the holodeck that recreates all these different types of threat environments so that they can so they can live out different types of threats and learn to respond to different types of threats and kind of train themselves. And that's one theory of dreams. That one's always made sense to me. The theory he advances in this book is, yeah, that dreams are are sort of like therapy, that dreams are uh, psychological processing, which is an interesting view. Moving on to part four of the book, we're finally going to get a bit more pragmatic. Part four is from sleeping pills to society transformed. Quote, that the sleep aid industry encompassing prescription sleeping medications and over-the-counter sleep remedies is worth an astonishing $30 billion a year in the U.S. is perhaps the only statistic one needs in order to realize how truly grave the problem is. Desperate millions of us are willing to pay a lot of money for a good night's sleep. And he describes the problem. In this fast-paced, information-overloaded modern world, one of the few times we stop our persistent informational consumption and inwardly reflect is when our heads hit the pillow. There is no worse time to consciously do this. Little wonder that sleep becomes nearly impossible to initiate or maintain when the spinning cogs of our emotional minds start churning, anxiously worrying about the things we did today, things we forgot to do, things we must face in the coming days, and even those far in the future. 
That is no kind of invitation for beckoning the calm brainwaves of sleep into your brain, peacefully allowing you to drift off, to drift off into a full night of restful slumber. And he goes on to talk about sleep paralysis. Okay, sleep paralysis is a subject that's always kind of interested me. Fortunately, I don't suffer from it. Don't worry if you have an episode of sleep paralysis at some point in your life. It is not unique to narcolepsy. Around one in four healthy individuals will experience sleep paralysis, which is to say that it is as common as hiccups. And he goes on to comment on aliens. That's right. Quote, Instead, most alleged alien abductions take place at night. Most classic alien visitations in Hollywood movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or E.T. also occur at night. Moreover, victims of claimed alien alien abductions frequently report the sense of or real presence of a being in the room, the alien. Finally, and this is the key giveaway, the alleged victim frequently describes having been injected with a paralyzing agent. Consequently, the victim will describe wanting to fight back, run away, or call out for help, but not being able to do so. The offending force is, of course, not aliens, but the persistence of REM sleep paralysis upon awakening. So, if you're like me, you have listened to innumerable podcasts, uh, podcasts and documentaries about alien conspiracy stuff. And I do this almost completely just for entertainment purposes because you'll hear these abduction reports. You'll hear them over and over and over again. And it's something like 90% of these abduction reports are so very similar where someone is uh, in bed or they are in their bedroom. Someone should be sleeping, but instead aliens come and abduct them. And it's just becoming really clear from understanding the way that sleep paralysis works that that these people are probably not actually being abducted by aliens. What I really think is going on here is that I think that uh, childhood sexual abuse, or some people call it uh, ritualistic satanic abuse, I think that this is something that's terribly common in society, sadly, unfortunately, enragingly common. And I think that people do not properly deal with that trauma. I think that society ignores children and children's uh, reports of bad things that happen to them far too often. 
And then I think people in modernity don't sleep very well. And I think that people watch television and they see aliens on television. And then their minds, which are stuck in between this waking world and this sleeping world because of, uh, because of the dysfunctional REM sleep cycle, I think these people are taking the childhood sexual trauma that they had and they are trying to reprocess it through this fictional lens of aliens that they have that they have seen. I think that is what's going on in probably about 90-95% of these different cases that you'll hear of of alien abductions happening. Go go listen to some conspiracy podcast. Now that I've explained this to you, where someone will be talking about their alien abduction and they really believe in it, but uh, I think you can really hear in their in their tall tale, I think you can really hear that inner child just trying to express something really terrible that that happened to them. Anyways, let's move on from that subject. I did say I was going to try to get pragmatic here because that's what I'm all about is the pragmatic stuff. Okay, we know from evidence discussed earlier in the book that sickness, especially sickness that activates a powerful immune response, activates more sleep. Ergo, the sickest individuals should be sleeping longer to battle back against illness using the suite of health tools sleep has on offer. It is simply that some illnesses such as cancer can be too powerful even for the mighty force of sleep to overcome, no matter how much sleep is obtained. Quote, there is an adaptive balance to be struck between wakefulness and sleep. In humans, that appears to be around 16 hours of total wakefulness and around 8 hours of total sleep for the average adult. And then he addresses junk light. Quote, artificial evening light, even that of modest strength or lux, as it's called, will fool your suprachiasmatic nucleus into believing the sun has not set. The break on melatonin, which should otherwise have been released with the timing of dusk, remains forcefully applied within your brain under duress of electric light. Even a hint of dim light, 8 to 10 lux, has been shown to delay the release of nighttime melatonin in humans. Okay, so to harken back to the title of this podcast, the lowest hanging longevity fruit is probably to get your nighttime light intake really, really correct. It is to do your damnedest 
to banish from your bedroom, from your abode where you spend time before bed, to do your damnedest to banish from that space the crappy artificial light. And this really will make a difference. This is something I have gotten pretty good at in the last couple of years. For two or three hours before bed, I will stay away from the crappy overhead light. I will go to bed in the darkness. I use candles. I use my red light therapy device with a specific wavelength of red light to illuminate my room. I make sure that our electronic devices, our laptops, our smartphones here in the Roseland, Roseland bedroom, the uh, Wi-Fi router with those blinking little LEDs on it, I make sure all of those lights are off as we turn off the lights to uh, lay down our heads on the pillow. And it really does make a difference. I'd suggest that's, that's pretty close to the lowest hanging fruit for empowering your sleep a bit more. If you've got a bedroom where you have some annoying lights going on, you've got some light shining in from the hallway, or you've got some electronic devices that have got some type of night light that's on them, that is costing you in an outsized way. Moving on, he comments, compared to reading a printed book, Reading on an iPad suppressed melatonin release by over 50% at night. And this was tough for me to read because I really enjoy reading on my iPad in the evenings. I am pretty much switched over completely at this point to digital books as opposed to as opposed to physical books, because it just gives me the capacity to to read so many more so many more books. I would have to maintain a, a rather large shelf if I was going to be reading as much as I did um, without the without the iPad. One of the things I wish the book would have included. He talks about studies where they found that using an iPad before bed, they did find that it definitely hurt people's melatonin release and sw- and sleep quality. But my suspicion is that these are people that are using the iPad with, with full brightness and they are perhaps looking at apps and web pages and maybe they've got the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth turned on. So I don't see a way at this point that I can have this uh, monastic kind of lifestyle as a biohacker where I have no technology that I'm touching for two or three hours before bed. So what I do when I read on my iPad, I turn off the Wi-Fi in the room, then I turn off the Wi-Fi on the iPad, I turn off the Bluetooth on the iPad and then I navigate over to the Kindle or that Google Play 
books app. And then I simply read with the black background and the white text. And I keep the brightness on the screen pretty low. And I do sleep quite well with that. So I suspect that the studies where they're showing iPads being catastrophic for sleep, I suspect that they are not doing it that way. Next piece of bad news. Quote, alcohol is one of the most powerful suppressors of REM sleep that we know of. People consuming even moderate amounts of alcohol in the afternoon or evening are thus depriving themselves of dream sleep. There is a sad and extreme demonstration of this fact observed in alcoholics who, when drinking, can show little in the way of any identifiable REM sleep. Going for such long stretches of time without dream sleep produces a tremendous buildup in and backlog of pressure to obtain REM sleep. So great, in fact, that it inflicts a frightening consequence upon these individuals. Aggressive intrusions of dreaming while they are wide awake. The pent-up REM sleep pressure erupts forcefully into waking consciousness, causing hallucinations, delusions, and gross disorientation. The technical term for this terrifying psychotic state is delirium tremens. In contrast, those who had their sleep laced with alcohol on the first night after learning suffered what can be conservatively described as partial amnesia seven days later, forgetting more than 50% of all that original knowledge. This fits well with evidence we discussed earlier, that of the brain's non-negotiable requirement for sleep the first night after learning for the purpose of memory processing. So this part I actually found quite helpful. He's talking about how if we're consuming alcohol, even very moderate amounts of alcohol, we are not getting proper REM sleep that is needed to constitute and kind of transfer our memories, the things that we have learned in a given day into long-term memory. And it's worse than that. He's saying that even seven days later, if you've been learning some fact, some, some new thing for seven days, and then on the seventh day, if you have some alcohol, you are actually hurting your mind's capacity to retain what you'd been working on learning for seven days. That's, that's amazing how costly uh, just a drink can be, isn't it? So here's what I might suggest to you is 
Personally, I have no intention of quitting alcohol permanently because I enjoy relaxing with my wife after dinner and having a glass of wine. I enjoy a crazy night out with friends and taking some shots every once in a while. I enjoy relaxing in my hammock on a Sunday afternoon and having a beer and uh, enjoying life a little bit. I I don't quite see the point of all this life hacking and biohacking and all of this uh all of this effort into living in a more optimized way if you are not buying yourself some indulgences from time to time to enjoy the the simple things in life, right? But what I might suggest to you because alcohol is costly in terms of the REM sleep, is that you do productivity sprints of 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, several times throughout the year, schedule productivity sprints where you say for 30 days or two months or three months, I'm going to be working on a specific project. I'm going to be trying to learn some new thing. I'm going to be very focused. I am going to abstain from all the things that make me weak, like alcohol. And then focus your personal development time on those, I call them sprints, and do a couple of those every year. And Don't drink while you're doing those. And you should notice that facts and information, you should notice that this is a a life hack for learning. And he ends with a funny suggestion. In the book, he says, the politically incorrect advice I would, of course, never give is this. Go to the pub for a drink in the morning. That way, the alcohol will be out of your system before sleep. Alcohol has such a bad effect on sleep that he's, uh, yes, he's subjecting, he's suggesting uh, drinking in the morning, which uh, even the worst of us have done that once or twice. Okay, moving forward to different sleep hacks, he's talking about temperature, the Ideal bedroom temperature should be around 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18.3 degrees centigrade. That's that's ideal for most people, assuming standard bedding and clothing. Oh, and then he had a section where he's addressing alarm clocks. Do you use an alarm clock? Maybe you shouldn't. Quote, most of us are aware of an even greater danger that lurks within the alarm clock, the snooze button. If alarming your heart, quite literally, were not enough, using the snooze snooze feature means that you will repeatedly inflict that cardiovascular assault again and again within a short span of time. Step and repeat this at least five days a week, and you begin to understand the multiplicative abuse your heart and nervous system will suffer across a lifespan. 
And he adds, parenthetically, a hobby, I found this hilarious, a hobby of mine is to collect the most innovative, ludicrous alarm clock designs in some hope of cataloging the depraved ways we humans wrench our brains out of sleep. One such clock has a number of geometric blocks that sit in complementary shaped holes on a pad. When the alarm goes off in the morning, it not only erupts into a blurting shriek, but also explodes the blocks out across the bedroom floor. And it will not shut off the alarm until you pick up and reposition all the blocks in their respective holes. My favorite, however, was the shredder. You take a paper bill, let's say $20, and slide it in the front of the clock at night. When the alarm goes off in the morning, you have a short amount of time to wake up and turn the alarm off before it begins shredding your money. This is I can think back to the past when I used to use an alarm clock to wake up in the morning and I was a chronic snoozer. I would do a lot of snoozing because it's just so terribly unnatural to have a uh, yeah to have a clock waking you up at inappropriate times. He also mentions for those wondering why cool blue light is the most potent of the visible light spectrum for regulatonin release, the answer lies in our distant ancestral past. Human beings, as we believe, is true of all forms of terrestrial organisms, emerged from marine life. The ocean acts like a light Filter, stripping away most of the longer yellow and red wavelength light. What remains is shorter blue wavelength light. It is the reason the ocean and our vision, when submerged under its surface, appears blue. Much of marine life, therefore, evolved within the blue visible light spectrum, including the evolution of aquatic eyesight. Our biased sensitivity to cool blue light is a vestigial carryover from our marine forebearers. That's fascinating, right? And then he moves on to talking about sleeping pills, talking about the pharmaceutical drugs that people take to get to sleep. And no surprises here, that is a super bad idea. As explained, quote, another deeply unpleasant feature of sleeping pills is rebound insomnia. When individuals stop taking these medications, they frequently suffer far worse sleep, sometimes even worse than the poor sleep that led them to seek out sleeping pills to begin with. The cause of rebound insomnia is a type of dependency in which the brain alters its balance of receptors as a reaction to the increased drug dose, trying to become somewhat less sensitive as a way of countering the foreign chemical within 
the brain. This is also known as drug tolerance. But when the drug is stopped, there is a withdrawal process, part of which involves an unpleasant spike in insomnia severity. So yeah, don't use sleeping pills because it's saying that you become dependent on them, which is, of course, just common sense. This is just what you should expect, is that if you are taking drugs to accomplish something, you're eventually going to become dependent on those drugs, especially if they are pharmaceuticals. Quote, in the early 2000s, insomnia rates ballooned and sleeping pill prescriptions escalated dramatically. It also meant much more data was available. Kripke began examining these large epidemiological databases. He wanted to explore whether there was a relationship between sleeping pill use and altered disease or mortality risk. There was. Time and again, the same message emerged from the analysis. Individuals taking sleeping pills were significantly more likely to die across these study periods, usually a handful of years, than those who were not. Those taking sleeping pills were 4.6 times, wow, 4.6 times, that means 460% more likely to die over this short two and a half year period than those who were not using sleeping pills. Kripke further discovered that the risk of death scaled with the frequency of use. Those individuals classified as heavy users defined as taking more than 132 pills per year were 5.3 times more likely to die over the study period than matched control participants who were not using sleeping pills. Wow. So yeah, the book really hammers the nail in the coffin on the case of whether or not you should be taking pharmaceutical sleeping pills. Please Please don't. Please urge your family member, friends, people that you care about not to not to take those things because it's just such a dreadfully um, unnatural and consequential hack of this uh, basic neurobiology that can be massaged through natural means, through natural kind of biohacking tools to uh to normalize things the book has a section which details a bunch of things that society screws up really badly in regards to sleep so um overworked employees you know the workaholism thing and the workaholism thing is something that i'm naturally inclined that way i'm naturally inclined to say I'll sleep when I'm dead. The, the, the time is now to work, right? That's my natural inclination. But the fact of the matter is that it's a really stupid mindset. Not getting enough sleep 
you end up being significantly less productive than if you got the sleep. So it's a case of choosing to work smarter as opposed to harder. The book talks about the the absolutely idiotic way that public schools do their start times in the United States where schools, high schools often and middle schools, they will start at 7.20 a.m. That is just an ungodly hour. And of course, when they force teenagers (laughs) to wake up at that hour, they end up not learning very much at all. And I recall the most tortuous period of my life was was high school. It was public schooling for sure. I was one of these kids that was not good at waking up early in the morning. And I, as a result, just have kind of a vague recollection of the AMs of my of my youth. I think because I was just so underslept that entire time. I recall being late a lot. I recall missing school a whole lot because it was just it was just so it was just so early. And then I I'm not sure what I learned in the AMs of my youth because I was just so underslept like millions and millions of other teenagers there in the United States of America. It really is a total insanity the way it's done. Let's see. He then goes on to talk about the healthcare system and how within the healthcare system, both the patients and often the doctors and the healthcare workers are systemically deprived of sleep to a, a dire, dire cost is inflicted by this. And there's an interesting factoid that I'll drop on you here. Stuart Halstead, MD, who was also a helpless drug addict, he himself practiced what he preached, being renowned for a seemingly superhuman ability to stay awake for apparently days on end without any fatigue. But Halstead had a dirty secret that only came to light years after his death and helped explain both the maniacal structure of his residency program and also his ability to forego sleep. Halstead was a cocaine addict. It was a sad and apparently accidental habit, one that started years before his arrival at John Hopkins. So this is commenting on the medical residency programs, and I've know, I know that you've heard about this if you've ever known a doctor uh, or a young doctor, someone going to school to be a doctor. They have to go through this ridiculous period of time early in their career where they work just an inhuman amount of hours at the hospital and they will uh, they'll be falling asleep in the bathrooms they'll be they'll be uh, falling asleep while talking to patients 
And it was this guy, Stuart Halstead, this cocaine addict. This was all his idea because he was on cocaine and he just thought that all of the young doctors that were training under him should be forced to work the insane hours that that he was working as he was, uh, I'm sure, taking taking breaks to take hits of below in the bathroom. And his particular way of doing business there at John Hopkins Hospital was instituted uh, throughout uh, many, many hospitals in the United States. It's, it's pretty amazing. He describes this a little bit further. Additionally, after a 30-hour shift without sleep, so that is one day plus six hours with no sleep, residents make a whopping 460% more diagnostic mistakes in the intensive care unit than when well-rested after enough sleep. Throughout the course of their residency, one in five medical residents will make a sleepless-related medical error that will cause significant liable harm to a patient. And get this, it gets even worse. One in 20 residents will kill a patient due to a lack of sleep. As I write this chapter, a new report has discovered that medical errors are the third leading cause of death among Americans after heart attacks and cancer. These are pretty uh, mind-boggling statistics, aren't they? So this idiotic policy of not letting medical residents get the sleep that any human needs to do any type of job at all. This idiotic policy started by a raging cocaine addict means that one out of 20 residents will kill a patient. That's like, that's a hell of a way to start a career. I'm a, I'm a podcaster and a website developer. And I imagine if Imagine if one out of 20 podcasters or one out of 20 web developers were, were killing people in the course of starting their, their career. Like, they would put us out of business. We would be done with web development and podcasting if one out of 20 of us were, were killing people. But that's what's going on in the medical world. It's pretty amazing. And this is why, importantly, if you have to go to a hospital and you have to undergo any type of elective surgery, you should ask your doctor how much sleep they have had. Ask them in such a way that they will respond to you frankly. And if they are in the middle of their residency and they have had, and they're totally sleep deprived, then maybe don't get surgery from them because doctors are killing a lot of people this way. It's, it's, it's a pretty smart thing to do. I wish that you'll have the, the, uh, the fortitude. Uh, I, 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 ho- I hope that you'll, you'll not be afraid to uh, challenge, challenge doctors in such a way if you uh, find yourself potentially on the uh, receiving end of the surgical 
knife. You want to make sure that it is in steady hands. And I will finish here by quoting the final line from the book that I liked, which was, quote, I believe it is time for us to reclaim our right to a full night of sleep without embarrassment or the damaging stigma of laziness. In doing so, we can be reunited with that most powerful elixir of wellness and vitality dispensed through every conceivable biological pathway. Then we may remember what it feels like to be truly awake during the day, infused with the deepest plentitude of being. Ooh, that's poetic, isn't it? So this was overall a pretty well-written book. Uh, The author, Matthew Walker, he certainly has a way with words, but as you can tell, it's kind of a, a long book. I felt that it could have possibly been two books. I would have maybe appreciated if the doctor, if the good doctor had perhaps done a book on uh, theoretical abstractions, delving into all that fascinating stuff about dreams and the neurophysiology of sleep. And then if maybe he could have put out a shorter book that went further into the deeper uh, pragmatic stuff, which I have uh, tried to impart here in this podcast. I do hope that you have found it helpful I hope that you will prioritize just a bit more getting that REM sleep. And I hope that you are repaid for that with some really cool dreams. If you get some really cool dreams, then do some dream journaling. And heck, you can share those with me. You can uh, drop a comment or shoot me an email or a message there on social media. I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, looking forward to a continued conversation with you.